Signal is a new magical realist podcast that invites you to complete small challenges in the real world. Will you choose to follow the instructions within? Visit SYGNAL.com to check it out and stick around to the end of this episode where I'll play an exclusive clip for you. Nature versus nurture is a question often asked in both science and science fiction. But if we set aside nature and dig deeper, who are we when we aren't defined by the needs and expectations of others? Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Sarah Gailey. Their latest book is The Echo Wife, out now from Tor Books. Sarah and I discuss the wonders of vine-ripened tomatoes, pushing back against narrative ableism, and how our identities are defined by the people around us. I had an absolutely incredible time talking with Sarah. Let's jump right in. Sarah Gailey, welcome to the Fantasy Inn. It is such a delight to have you on the podcast. Oh my goodness, it's such a delight to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to start things off, I hear that you like ranking things and that people don't give you the chance nearly often enough. So given the year that we've just survived, I thought we could go with a relevant ranking. What are the top five things that have brought you joy lately? Oh my goodness. Top five is so tricky. Um, I'm going to be a little bit schmaltzy. Uh, Okay. in, In ascending order. So the fifth one would be my dog Tinkerbell. She is a, a pit bull mix who looks like a, if you put a cow and a pig together in the machine from the fly and <laughs> kind of jumped up this side, <laughs> she would come out the other side. Um, she especially brought me joy this morning because she did that dog thing where she decided to like flop sideways onto my lap and look up at me with just love beams shooting out of her face. She was doing it because she wanted my sandwich, but like still, (laughs) I I don't need it to be, I don't need it to be sincere. Um, number four would be, uh, the, this Becky Chambers books that I just had the opportunity to write. It's called a Psalm for the wild built. It comes out this year. And I mean, Becky Chambers writing, I'm not unique in saying that it always makes me feel a little bit more alive and a little happier to be that way. Um, number four would be my garden, which I have planted a bunch of potatoes in. And once I got Tinkerbell, the dog to stop digging them up and inexplicably eating them for some dog reason that is completely arcane to me. Um, they've started growing like crazy and that just, it, it's so grounding and it makes me feel so happy every day to just see like, wow, things are still growing and thriving, even though everything in the world feels like a nightmare hell dimension. Yeah, I've been following your gardening updates on your newsletter, so (laughs) it's been bringing me joy. (laughs) I'll keep them up. I'll keep keep being like, hey, I know that democracy is collapsing, but here's some tomatoes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's amazing how much that actually does help. Number two on the list is actually, uh, you gave me a great segue, that newsletter. Um, My Substack community is amazing. I I started doing this newsletter on MailChimp a few years ago because my literary agent was like, you have to stop sending me new ideas, put them somewhere else. And so I started this newsletter and then I migrated over to Substack because MailChimp is total butt cheek Um, (laughs) or just a terrible platform. (laughs) And so I migrated over to Substack when Substack was pretty new. And all of a sudden this community sprang up of people who are like kind and thoughtful and patient with each other. Even, you know, over the course of this past year, when everyone's emotions are running really high, people show up in the comments section, which is for paying subscribers only because you've got to pay the toll toll. And they say like, I'm having a hard time. I need some support. And everyone supports it. It's, it's so beautiful. And I feel like really honored that it's happening for some reason on my newsletter. Um, and then number one is I'm going to be real goopy. My family, I live in a household of three people and the like mutual support and trust and care we show each other is the only thing that keeps me alive. Sometimes. Yeah, I think that's so important. And especially, uh, I mean, there's what, like three world crises going on or something at the moment right now. So now more than ever, I, did, I don't know. I haven't checked Twitter, so it could be anywhere between three and five. 
Yeah, that is how things go lately. Yeah. Uh, especially, I mean, we all thought we were done with 2020, but 2021. <laughs> it's it's like um it's like the end of like a nightmare on Elm Street where you're like, okay, good, it's over, it's all behind me now. And then Freddy Krueger just kind of like the claws come up over your shoulder and you're like, all oh, right, this is still gonna happen. Yep. Yeah. Okay, wait. I know that I'm the interviewee, but can I ask you what a thing is that's been bringing you joy? Uh, yeah, sure. Let's see. Honestly, I I guess one thing that's been bringing me joy is just this podcast. I've been really, really loving like every aspect of it, especially getting to talk to wonderful people like yourself. Uh, so I don't know. I, I've always been a huge fan of like science fiction and fantasy books. And now I get to talk to people who create them. And so uh, awesome. I think I've had a 100% success rate with having just absolutely lovely people on the show. Oh, that's so great. Do you want me to be a dud so that you can like, you can like change that up a little bit? <laughs> I can be like rude and boring. Uh, I don't think you could be rude and boring. But. <laughs> I could do my best. Well, I guess to uh, take you back, way back, uh, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Oh, wow. I mean, I really, this is kind of like asking what made me fall in love with like eating. <laughs> it, it's hard to remember because I, re- I grew up really immersed in science fiction and fantasy. My mom is one of the original Trekkies. She never let me go to conventions with her and my sisters when I was a kid because she she always said I was too little and would get tired. Um, I think it was really because, like, dragging a toddler around a Star Trek convention is a nightmare. <laughs> um, I have so much respect for parents who bring their kids to cons because, like, they are, they are putting the work in. Um, but even though I didn't get to kind of be part of that community with her, I got all of the immersion in it at home. I grew up watching science fiction and fantasy television. I grew up reading science fiction and fantasy books. Uh, it was kind of just the water I was swimming in. Uh, because I'm 30 years old, of course, Harry Potter is part of that, which is such a weird thing to reckon with as a queer person. It's super strange to be like this hateful person wrote this thing that got me really invested in fantasy. Um, But even before that, I mean, I've got to give so much credit to Patricia C. Reed and the Dealing with Dragons series, her Enchanted Forest Chronicles. Those were some of the first chapter books I read. I was a sick kid, and so I spent a lot of time in, like, hospitals and oxygen tents and stuff. And you can't watch... We we couldn't watch TV at the time. I guess now you can watch TV in hospitals because we live in the future. But at the time, they were like, you have to make your own fun child in a hospital. And so my mom brought me this tote bag full of Patricia C. Reed books and was like, good luck. And I, I just, I, I went crazy for him and I've never really looked back. I have not read nearly enough Patricia C. Reed. I think I've read one or two of her books, uh, but it's been a while, quite some years. Yeah. They, I revisited them this last year for a piece I was writing and they hold up phenomenally. I mean, they're just like, funny and not condescending in a way that I really value in children's literature. They're definitely written for kids. And a lot of the humor is really for kids. It's like someone getting soup spilled all over them kind of thing. But there's also a lot of genuinely very funny moments that take what you would expect to happen in a narrative and say, there's no reason to do that. So screw it. We're doing something else instead. And I remember as a kid being like, whoa, you can do that. (laughs) And as an adult, I'm still kind of like, whoa, you can do that. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like the more I read, the more I find that the target age range for a story has nothing to do with its quality or how smart it is or the complexity, any of that. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of, I don't write middle grade because I don't think I have the chops. Um, and some of my some of the authors I admire most are authors who write middle grade that is written for children, but still appeals to me as an adult because I read it. I'm like, this is good ass writing, and kids deserve that. I mean, they're so much smarter than a lot of us give them credit for. I remember uh, when I was younger, uh, my parents were kind of worried, even though that they grew up big readers themselves, they were still kind of worried, like, oh, like we want to check what you're reading, we want to make sure you know it's like age appropriate and everything. But I, I think most avid readers go through a phase similar to that at some point, and everyone finds a way around it, anyways. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, I have I have two older sisters who are uh, quite a bit older than I am, and I spent so much of my childhood sneaking into their bedrooms and like looking at their bookshelf um, and being like, okay, which which of these books might have sex in it? 
Wait, which is, <laughs> I'm like eight years old and I'm like, this one looks like someone might do a drug. I want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess uh, moving on from just like how you started with reading, how did you get started with writing? So what is your like, quote unquote, writerly origin story? So I don't, I don't talk about this part nearly enough, but since we're taking it all the way back, um, the first story I ever wrote was for this contest when I was in elementary school. It was called the Young Authors Contest, um, where they were like, write a story and then we'll publish it, which meant that they would print it out and put it in a little, like the plastic spiral binding thing. Yeah. Um, and then you have a book that you wrote and, you know, you would like, like print it out on printer paper with like some lines on the top and some on the bottom and you color a picture in the middle. And I being a, super weirdo. Uh, I think this was like first grade wrote a story about a limousine driver named Bob. Cause I was really excited about limousines at the time who knew that the queen was coming to town, but he also knew that there was going to be a big tidal wave of acid coming from the local acid factory. And it was like toxic bright green acid. And he was like, I got to save the queen who's coming to town. And so he put his limo between her and the big wave of acid and sacrificed his life to save her. <laughs> and there's a, a crayon drawing that I drew of his skeleton in the limousine. <laughs> um, but there's an epilogue where he's a spooky ghost at a nearby cemetery who saves some kids from an explosion. So don't okay, worry. So somewhat a happily ever after. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a great ending for everyone. I really need to repurpose this one into a full length novel as an adult because I think there's a lot there. And, you know, I, I loved stories as a kid. I was a huge dweeb. I read all the time. Um, and I, I, in high school, was like, I want to be a writer for maybe a month, kind of the way that teenagers sometimes do, where they're like, what if this is the thing I'm going to be? Yeah. And then I moved away from it because I was like, well, that seems hard. And I didn't come back to it for a long time. And then as a, as a grown-up, like I am now, I had this friend who was a writer, and he was like, the writeriest person I know. He had short stories published in magazines. He went to cons. He like talked a lot about being a writer. And he was my friend who wrote stuff. And he would send me his short stories. And uh, he was like, will you beta read these for me? And I was like, what's beta reading? And he said, well, it's basically where you give me extensive editorial feedback and notes on everything I write. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and so I would give him like really extensive developmental edits on his short stories. And I did this for God, a ton of them. And then finally, one day I had an idea. And so I wrote a little story of my own. Not a great one, but like not terrible. And I, I asked him if he would look at it. And he said, oh, I'm really busy. And I was like, well, you know, I've done, I've done beta reading for like multiple dozens of your short stories. So maybe if you could just make some time and just take a look at it and tell me if it's any good. And he said, fine. And he read it and he came back to me with, uh, some people should stick to what they're good at. Wow. And I didn't write anything else for like six months. And then I had another idea and I was like, maybe I'll just write this one. I won't tell him about it. And I wrote a story called a short story called look, uh, which is a horror story about a baby that's born with sealed shut eyes. And then the doctor finds moths inside the eyes. Sorry, I just spoiled the ending, but it's like a 900 word story. So it's a pretty short way to go for that spoiler. Um, I got published in a, a magazine called Seas Cows, which is a free venue. And I was so excited. And so I just started writing and I wrote 21 stories in my first year of writing short stories. I just would sit down and like crank them out. And I've never really slowed down since then. <laughs> That's amazing. And I'm so glad that you say it only took you six months to get back into writing because for a lot of people, like that could shut them down for a while. That is like really shitty feedback to get. It sucked, man. It hurt so bad. And it, I'm not friends with this guy anymore because he was the worst. But in hindsight, I mean, it's so apparent to me that that's the kind of feedback you give someone when you want them to keep on helping you for free instead of realizing what they're worth. And I learned so much from, from that realization, from that realization that actually I'm a good writer and this guy wants me to think I'm a bad writer for his own reasons. I've taken that into so many other situations where I've gotten similar feedback. You know, there, there's valid and important and necessary feedback like, hey, you're writing this in a harmful way or, hey, this sentence doesn't make any sense. Words don't do that. 
But there's also feedback like, you suck and you're stupid and you shouldn't do this anymore. And that's not feedback that anybody needs to listen to, especially not when it's coming from inside our own heads, as it so often does. Yeah, that's the only place that feedback should be, and it should not even be there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, so I was reading through uh, an Ask Me Anything you did online back in 2018, and you said then that you were trying to learn more about narrative ableism uh, by reading works from disabled writers. So is there anything you've learned since then that you try to apply to your work now? Oh my gosh, so much. Um, oh, it's tricky to it's tricky to like sort out what the things are that I've learned in the time since 2018 because it's been about 50 years since 2018. We're just things in general. Uh, I'm not t- too tied to the specific date. But I mean, um, so I'm I'm disabled, and in 2018, I was kind of newly accepting that. And in the time since I've gotten a diagnosis and some treatment, which has been really awesome, but at the time, I was really just starting to put in the work that it takes to learn about disability, both in life and in in narrative, and to undo a lot of the sort of ambient education that we get about disability living in the U.S. um, and living under capitalism. We internalize a lot of ideas about disability and people with disabilities that aren't grounded in fact and aren't grounded in compassion and aren't necessary Um, unless you think that the most important thing in the world is like supporting capitalism. (laughs) So that's kind of the work I've been doing both so that I can love and care for myself and the people around me better. And so that I can write better stories. Um, narrative ableism is really common. It's kind of everywhere. Once you start looking for it, you'll see it all over the place. It's concepts like, uh, disabled people can't have, romantic story arcs or can't be the leads in an adventure or have to necessarily hold a certain role in a cast of characters because they're disabled. And a lot of my reading of disabled authors has just been focused on, you know, I mean, first of all, like enjoying their books because they whip ass, but also when I'm, when I'm reading with that kind of lens of, I need to be taking some mental notes about how to undo this kind of thing in my own writing. It's really about seeing the ways that disabled authors who are rejecting narrative ableism center people with disabilities and their experiences in a story instead of centering the viewpoint of a non-disabled reader. It's, how do I explain this? It's like very, very squishy in my brain ideas that I'm trying to form into actual solid words for you. Um, It's the idea of not softening a story or pumping the brakes on it so that it can be comprehensible to someone who thinks that disabled people don't belong in that story. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Don't sand it down or file it down just to like, it takes away a lot of the beauty of it. Exactly. I I already do this kind of, I don't want to say innately because I did not always do this, but I do it a lot more easily right now with queer characters and queer representation where I'm not softening it. I'm not sending it down. I'm not throwing a blanket over it for the sake of hetero readers because they're not my priority. They're not who I'm necessarily thinking about when I'm writing. And part of coming to understand again, my own disability and also narrative ableism and the way that disability can be part of my narratives is learning not to do that with disabled characters and storylines. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, uh, especially since, uh, I don't know, I've been seeing online, I guess there's been some context in the last day, actually, about uh, planning cons and ableism going into that and all of that. Oh, man. Yeah, Yeah. it's been a a wild 24 hours. (laughs) (laughs) I spent yesterday really deep into um, editing a manuscript that I'm working on right now. And I would come up for air like once every hour and a half, two hours, and just be like, what's happening on the internet? (laughs) I would kind of like poke my head into Twitter and be like, "Mm, I can't dive into this right now. Um, But it's, I mean, it's silliness, right? We, we, I, I feel, I could be totally off base in this, that sometimes when people in the science fiction fantasy community are planning things, and goof up with the planning in a way that makes people say, hey, you goofed up. I don't like what you're doing. I feel like 
that can be the time when we talk most about disability accommodation because people like to use it as a weird excuse for bad behavior. And as a disabled person who needs some accommodation, I'm like, please don't do this. Like, if you're not talking about disability accommodation before you goof up, I don't feel like you get to bring it in as an excuse to cover up your goofs. I don't know. Maybe that's wild of me. I, I don't think that's that wild of a take. <laughs> like, can that, we talk that is a about, very lukewarm take. <laughs> can we please be talking about reasonable accommodations for people with visual and hearing based disabilities like before everyone is mad at your bad decision? <laughs> if only we had some past experience to tell us how we could do better. Can you imagine if we had past experience with like planning big events and conventions? Ooh, that would be so convenient. It would be so nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> Can you imagine if there were like a lot of disabled people in the science fiction and fantasy community who could advise on these matters and who were actually <sighs> asked about it? Like, oh, that would be weird. But I guess we don't live in that world. This is why I'm a science fiction writer because I come up with this these wild and crazy ideas. Well, uh, so I do understand kind of on the same note that you have a special ergonomic setup to help make writing more comfortable. So given that so many people have found themselves sort of unexpectedly working from home or in different environments this past year, do you have any advice on how to make a home workstation a bit more ergonomic? Yeah. Um, I hesitate to, I want to make it very clear that when we talk about ergonomics, I'm, I'm not coming from a perspective of having actually like any particular expertise or having consulted with anyone who has expertise on this. So I don't want anyone to think that this is like the advice of a, of an actual physical therapist or ergonomic coordinator kind of thing. Cause there are people who do that for a living who are much smarter than me about these things and who might look at my setup and be like, Oh no. <laughs> Uh, my big advice is to make a way to move around. Um, one, my, I have multiple physical disabilities and all of them make my whole body just bad. It's just a garbage mess. And it, it's uncomfortable to sit still in the same position for a long time. And I feel that more acutely than a lot of people. But I think that's true for most folks, that if you're stuck sitting in the same position for a long time, your body starts to go, no, thank you. Um, so I would advise finding ways to be able to move around. I've got a special footrest that I put in front of my office chair because I'm very short. And so my legs don't reach the ground when I sit in my desk chair. And it's really useful to be able to put my feet up or put them down or have my legs crossed or stretched out. Um, I also have the chair that I'm sitting in right now when talking to you. This is not my desk. People sometimes think it is, but it's actually an armchair that I have in my bedroom that I use for conversations like this so that I'm not like taking up all the common space with my my noise. And sometimes I come and do work from here because it enables me to like lean back or sit sideways. I also don't recommend working on the couch because couches aren't really made for the kind of sitting that we're supposed to do for a long period of time. But also if that's the most comfortable thing for you, do it. Um, I've got wrist rests for my, in front of my keyboard to support my wrists so that my hands aren't in a precarious position um, that's bad for typing for a long amount of time. And I mean, I really just try to listen to my body. That's my biggest advice for anyone working from home for the first time. Listen to what your body's telling you. If your body is, if you're feeling like tired and grouchy and uncomfortable after a couple of hours sitting at your workstation, you probably need to get up and stretch or you probably need to adjust the way that you're sitting to accommodate the needs of your physical entombment. Uh, all good, I guess, with a caveat, non-expert advice, but it does feel very useful. I'm glad. Yeah, I know. I, I finally splurged and I got myself a better chair because I've been sitting on a piece of crap like a uh, kitchen chair at my oh, dining no. room table for the last 10 months now. Uh, oh, and that no. resulted in like a good three months of my back being in so much pain that like I could hardly get out of bed or like walk around. So, oh my God, I'm so yeah. sorry. I'm finally uh, doing something about that. There's this chair that Instagram keeps advertising to me and the, the Instagram algorithm is like too smart. I'm really mad about it, but it's this chair called the like BU chair and it has a back and sides that can fold up or down so that you can huh. make it like a stool that you can sit on or you can have your legs stretched out to one side. Like it's like a chaise lounge or, or you can like, have an armrest or you can use, you can pivot the armrest and like put it flat to use it as a little desk. And it's so expensive and I want it so bad. 
Yeah, I love the concept. I hate how you had to discover that chair, though, through Instagram. Um, It's brutal. The Instagram algorithm gets me every time. It's like, here's this cool Tupperware. Don't you want it? And I'm like, yeah, I do. Uh, proof that it's working, but also very kind of invasive. Yeah. Yep. I don't like being known that well by a computer. So I do want to talk briefly about something you said in your Sirens Conference guest of honor speech last year, which is when you do what you love, you never stop working a day in your life. And (laughs) I far prefer this idea to the more widely quoted version about never truly working if you love what you do. Uh, So that does raise the question, how do you set boundaries for yourself and take time away from your work, even if it's work that you love? My loved ones and my therapist also asked me this question. A lot. Uh, <laughs> I'm terrible at it. I'm terrible at setting boundaries around my work. Um, I I work way too much. I'm in like a perpetual state of just teetering on the brink of burnout because I love what I do. And so I am constantly doing it. And what that means is not just like I'm always writing, but I'm also, I'm always thinking about writing. I'm always grabbing little things and tucking them into my cheek like a chipmunk to pull out when I'm going to write my, my partner's make fun of me all the time because we'll be having a conversation. And I'll be like, Oh, that's really cool. And they'll be like, are you going to, you're going to write about this later. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> uh, the best thing that I, that I am able to do for setting boundaries around my work is this is like a, like a behavioral intervention is find ways to make it impossible for me to be working. So like, putting on a podcast while I'm cooking so that I can't be thinking about writing. I have to be like listening to the words, getting into a hot bath that I can't bring my laptop with me. Although I am pretty bad about working on my phone from the tub because I've realized that my phone's pretty water resistant. (laughs) So I'm not as scared to drop it in the bath as I should be. Um, Going out and gardening because that really takes a lot of focus and attention. Those are kind of the, the only things that I know how to do to other than sleeping to be like, okay, work brain, you got to get out of here. You got to shut off because I need to be, I'm advised that I need to be not working all the time. I don't know. That's what they keep telling me. Yeah. Well, at least I hope you're one of those people who doesn't like, I guess, turn then your dreams into writing prompts and ideas because then it sort of feels like you're still working when you're sleeping. Oh my gosh. I, I rarely do that because my dreams aren't really interesting enough um, to be Oh, I'm lying though, because the, the manuscript I'm working on right now originated for me sleep talking. I was taking a nap <laughs> and I sat bolt upright and looked at my partner really urgently. And they were like, what? And I said, under the bed is the scariest place in the house. And then I went back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and that turned into the prompt for the manuscript I'm editing right now. I got no excuses. I also do emails in my dreams all the time. All the time oh, I no. do emails in my dreams. I'll have dreams where I'm just like... I open up an email and it's from my agent and they're like, Hey, can you sign this form? And I'm like, great. And I download the document and I open up the app that I use to e-sign stuff and I e-sign it and then I email it back and then I'll wake up and I'm like, why do I, I could have been dreaming about flying. Like, why am I wasting dream time on emails? <laughs> yeah. Are you also, uh, I might be projecting here a little bit, but this was admittedly a selfish question because I have the bad habit of, I like to take like any kind of fun passion or hobby or something like that and try to be like, how can I make this as productive as possible? How can I produce something with this? Yeah. 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 That's that capitalism poisoning. It's brutal. I do it all the time. Uh, I actually, so this past year, a lot of people who I love kind of separately sat me down and were like, you have to have a hobby. Like you have to do something that's not working or taking care of the house. Like, you know, cause I cook and clean a lot. And so I decided to get back into painting, which I'm fine at, but not great at. And so I've been doing these miniature ocean studies. I, I was like, I'll do one of them every single day so that I have hobby time every single day. So it's been like three months and I've done five of them. <laughs> uh, I, I have not done it every day because it, it takes me like half an hour to do one. I have not, I have not been sticking to the hobby project, but I'm not good enough at painting to monetize it. I can't show anybody these things because they're not good. And so that's like the closest I've gotten, but everything else, man, I even like cooking, which I love doing and I'm pretty good at I was like, oh, I'll make it into part of the newsletter. I was going to say, I've definitely seen that show up. 
I am so guilty of that. It's awful. And even gardening, right? I'm like, I'll write about it. And uh, we're hopeless. <laughs> I don't know. Please, please don't take this the wrong way, but I hope you stay very just fine at painting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the rate I'm going, I'm not practicing it often enough to get any better. <laughs> right. Speaking of your newsletter uh, and your experiences gardening, so uh, I really enjoyed the one you wrote about all the tomatoes and kind of like, I guess, having to come to terms with unexpected success. So since apparently you're blessed with an endless supply of tomatoes, uh, <laughs> can you share a favorite recipe that you've used them in? Yeah, my I'm, I'm going to share my recipe for tomato jam, actually, because that's what I've been okay. doing with all of my tomatoes. We moved here for any of your any of your listeners who aren't aware um, of this this tomato content we're referring to. Um, I moved this summer. I've been living in Los Angeles and Los Angeles is not, not the best place to live right now. And we could afford to move. So we did move to a tiny little town a bit North and it has a backyard that came with some tomato plants that have been totally neglected by the former resident. She had just not done anything with them. So they got really bushy and huge and I gave them a tiny bit of care and attention and they just exploded and we're like tomatoes. I was like, okay, great. And summer tomatoes, I'm going to go off on, is it okay if I go off on a little tomato tangent? Yeah, please do. Just a little one. Um, the tomatoes that you buy at the store taste totally different from tomatoes off the vine, even if they're attached to the vine in the store, because very ripe tomatoes are really soft and don't transport well. And they will ripen if you take them off the plant, they'll turn red. So often the tomatoes you buy at the store are harvested when they're green and then shipped to the store when they're still like hard and easy to transport. And then they ripen like in the back room of the store or on the truck on the way there and they turn red. And so you eat them and they kind of taste like, okay, yeah, tomato, I guess. Tomatoes that ripen on the vine ripen a little differently instead of just sort of aging into redness because of exposure to various, uh, those are not pheromones. I don't know, plant vapors that make them turn red. They ripen on the vine through a process of uh, like, the plant deciding it's time for them to ripen when the, the conditions are right. The plant will go, okay, I want this fruit to become appealing to things that want to eat it. And then we'll poop out the seeds elsewhere and propagate me. So the plant starts withdrawing water from the tomato as the tomato turns red. And that process of withdrawing the water makes the flesh become a little more firm makes the inside become a little less watery and hyper concentrates the sugars in the tomato, which make it so sweet. And that's that vine ripened tomato flavor that people talk about. And that's why if you have a tomato plant and you pluck a tomato off it and you eat it, you're like, this is the best tomato in the whole world because it's got so much more really tasty tomatoey plant sugars in it. All of this is to say summer vine ripened tomatoes are crazy delicious and I wanted to save that flavor. And also I could not possibly consume all the freaking tomatoes on that plant. There were hundreds of them. So I made tomato jam. Tomato jam is a great way to preserve a lot of tomatoes. And it's also a great way to extend ripe summer tomato flavor throughout the whole year. Um, it's super, super easy. The base recipe for it is just you take your tomatoes. If you have little baby ones, you just cut them in half. If you have big ones like beefsteak tomatoes, or even like Romas, you want to get the skins off, which is really simple. You just cut a little X on the butt of the tomato, the end up as the stem, drop them in boiling water for a minute, put them in an ice bath for like two or three minutes, and then the skins slide right off. It's really satisfying, actually. Um, and then you chop those up. You can take out the seeds if you want, but I never do. I don't really understand why people do that. People are always like, remove the core and seeds. And I'm like, I don't have the patience for that. So I just leave the seeds in. Put them in a big pot with a heavy bottom. Um, I like to put some onion and garlic in there, but you don't have to. Drizzle with olive oil, put some salt and pepper, and then you just cook it either on your stovetop over a very low heat, stirring regularly, or in your oven at like 275 degrees Fahrenheit for several hours, stirring once every 30 minutes or so. And you'll start to see, oh, uncovered, You'll start to see all the liquid evaporate and the tomatoes will turn into kind of mush and then all the liquid will get out of there and you'll end up with something the consistency of jam where if you drag like a spoon through it, you'll get a valley that doesn't fill immediately with liquid and then you can either can it or if you're like me and you don't have the patience for canning, you can put it up in the freezer. It keeps for a million years and you can just thaw it out whenever you want some good tomato flavor on stuff. You can spread it on toast. You can mix it into soups and sauces. You can also... 
augment the flavor so you can make it sweeter. If you want a sweet tomato jam, which will go great with like goat cheese, you can add some brown sugar and some baking spices like cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice, clove. If you want something a little more savory with like kind of a more um, Italian flavor that would be really good on flatbread or on a, on a good sandwich, you can add more garlic and onion and then some garden spices like thyme, oregano, maybe a bay leaf, some sage. I've got a really great rosemary bush here um, that is like humongous and full of bumblebees all the time. And I really love taking a handful of fresh rosemary and chopping it up and throwing it in there. Um, super, super versatile. And I really love it because now I've just got a freezer full of this like summery flavor, which I thought I was going to run out of because tomato plants are supposed to stop producing at some point. And my tomato plants are like, nope, we're just going to keep going. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. And so I actually did not know, but I'm not surprised that vine-ripe tomatoes are so much better than store-bought ones. Uh, but this does explain, so like my my slight tangent on tomatoes is when I was really young, I was probably like four years old or something, uh, my grandmother used to be a huge gardener and she was so proud of all her tomatoes and she was like setting them all out and everything. And so little me wanted to help. And so I came along and I took one bite out of every single tomato that she <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> but yeah i'm assuming that vine ripe flavor is why i found that so appealing i mean it's also just satisfying to be like i will sample <laughs> just a little bit i've got yep. uh, some some vermin in my garden who keeps on doing that with my brassicas i'm growing brussels sprouts and cabbages and kale and some creature keeps coming along and just eating one of each plant mm. <laughs> and, the, and I'm like, can we? Can you just pick one plant and stick to it? Yeah, no kidding. Uh, well, okay. So we have gone, I think, like 37 minutes now without actually talking about the reason why you're here. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the Echo Wife. Do you have right. a pitch for the novel? I do. Um, the Echo Wife is the story of Evelyn Caldwell, a brilliant scientist who invents adult duplicative cloning, which means I've got one of you, and then I go boop, and I've got another you and a test tube full of goo. It's the story of the year after she leaves her husband, Nathan, because she discovers him having an affair with a clone of her that he created by stealing her technology so that he could have a less threatening, more docile version of her. Uh, she and the clone end up having to work together to solve a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a story about duality and identity and origins and also clones and trying to cover up a murder. Yeah, so uh, I'm glad you said that trying to cover up a murder thing because I didn't see it coming in the story. I should have seen it coming because it's on all of the advertisement for the book. <laughs> it's on Goodreads, it's on Amazon, it's on the back cover copy. Uh, but I don't really read that that much. I had like your initial pitch and I was like, okay, I'm sold. Like this, this sounds incredible. Like I'm going to dive in. I didn't read, I guess, the second half of that pitch. You know what? I do that too. One of my favorite ways to read books, especially if someone has recommended the book to me who I trust, is to not learn anything about it and just dive right in. That's how I ended up uh, reading Lula Miller's Why Fish Don't Exist, which is a nonfiction book that goes places I could never have imagined. Um, and I didn't learn anything about it ahead of time. I was just like, all right, I'll read this. And it's so much more satisfying that way if the book is good. Yeah. If the if book the, is good, right. If we're talking about like a boy snowbird situation, not having some warnings going in kind of sucks. Yeah, it's, it's definitely possible to have a terrible experience with that. Thankfully, I really trust like the recommendations I get from people who know my reading tastes. Uh, so that doesn't usually happen if it's a recommendation. Well, I'm glad that you had a good experience with the Echo Wife. Yes, I did. Uh, I I mean, part, part of it's because the book is short, but I've been having a lot of trouble like sitting down with a print book and like actually it holding my attention. And this is like one of a handful of books in the last like six months or so that I've done that. So yes, I had a fantastic experience. So weird. I can't imagine why you would be struggling to sit down and focus on a book. It, it's on the tip months. of my tongue, but you know, it, especially, it's yeah, yeah. Unknowable. Hard to say. Hard to say, really. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, so I guess this is a really unique uh, or at least compelling story idea, I think. So how what how did like the story idea come about? What's the origin for how this story came to be? So I'd had I'd had kind of a clone story broth floating around in my brain for a little while. Um, I had tried a, I wrote a short story about a clone that was not good and you will not find it published anywhere because it, no one should ever buy it or read it. And I was sort of sitting with this notion of like 
a story about cloning that involves confrontation of the self and especially the exploited self, like the, the self that serves others and exists for others. And I've been like noodling around on that. And I was married at the time, um, and that marriage had to end, and the way that it had to end involved me needing to move to a new state for a little while and kind of be on my own. Um, I want to be very clear. I'm saying this in every single interview I do about this, that my marriage was nothing like the marriage in the book. Uh, my ex-husband is a lovely, sweet man, but we had to go our separate ways. And in that moment, I found myself really unmoored because I was separated from the, the person who I had really built my life around and the communities we'd been a part of. And as far from my family, and I didn't really know almost anyone in this, the city that I moved to. And all of a sudden I was on my own trying to figure out who I was when I wasn't defining myself based on the needs and expectations of others. And it was so hard and scary. It was like, I'm glad that it happened because I'm a totally different person now. And I really like the person who I've become, but boy, going through it sucked. This is not easy. And in that same period of time, it was time for me to start writing another book. I had finished writing Magic for Liars. Um, it was in my editor's hands and I needed to get started on my next manuscript. And I had had this big pitch and outline for this epic fantasy that I was going to write. And I sat down with my agent and my agent bought us a pitcher of beer and a huge thing of tater tots. And I was like, this doesn't bode well because <laughs> if, this is, if this is what the check-in about the epic fantasy is going to look like, uh-oh. And my agent said, I have bad news. You know, I really love the epic fantasy pitch, but I don't think it's the right direction for your career right now. I think we should set it aside. You should do something a little bit different, but don't worry. We're going to sit down with this pitcher of beer and these tater tots, and we're going to, we're going to talk through ideas until we figure out what you're going to do next. And I, I took like one sip of my beer. I set it down. And in that moment, all of that clone broth and all of this identity goop just crystallized. And I said, okay, what if it was a book about a woman who divorces her husband because she finds out that he cloned her and has been having an affair with the clone and she has to figure out who she is in the light of this news? And the agent was like, well, okay, but like, what are we going to do with the rest of this picture of beer? <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. Um, I moved to Portland like three weeks later. I, I had been visiting to find an apartment and then I moved there. And then I sort of hunkered down in my loneliness pod and I wrote a book. Yeah, as easy as that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Your agent seems like they had a fantastic approach to that. And I am very curious about what that epic fantasy could have been. But I'm also very happy with the Echo Wife coming out of that situation. I am too. I think it was the right, the right book for me to write at that time. I, I, I love that epic fantasy pitch. It's still in my back pocket. I'm still sitting on it for when the time is right. But the, the path I've taken as a writer into the kind of crossover thriller arena has been so awesome. I love it so much. I love these kinds of stories and I really love getting to be part of that world, part of the, the world of, thrillers and kind of talking to audiences who maybe don't read as much science fiction and fantasy and are coming into it for the first time. Right. Yeah. Something uh, I am personally attracted to like the type of science fiction and fantasy, I suppose as well, where it doesn't necessarily have to be set in that genre, if that makes sense. Like you got your, your story concept and like the trappings around that with the setting and everything is somewhat divorced. At least that that's the type of story that the echo wife seemed to be to me. That's what I love too. I, I try to never write stories that have like unnecessary pieces to them, but the focus for me and everything that I write and especially in the echo wife is on relationships. And the, I want the science fiction and fantasy to support the relationships as opposed to the other way around. So, okay. So I do want to ask you, and I think I already know the answer might be no, but, uh, the echo wife did remind me of Ray Bradbury's short story, Marionettes Inc. Um, so are you familiar with that story at all? I have heard of it, but I would okay. love to know what uh, what brought it to mind. Yeah, so it brought it to mind to me. Well, one, I encountered it because apparently some high school teacher of mine found it important and like a part of the canon and they taught it in class. Uh, so that's that. how I discovered it. <laughs> but uh, it's basically like 
kind of a concept similar to the Echo Wife, but like if you were telling it from the man's perspective. And uh, it was somewhat of a horror where it's really, really scary to consider that these women are actual human beings with wants and desires <laughs> outside of what you want for them. It's terrifying. Yeah, right? That's That's really bone chilling stuff right there. And so I had that like flashback to that story from high school for me. And I was like, you know, like this is a much better take on it. I don't know if it's a product of its time being 72 years ago, I think, that that story came out. Uh, but even then, like there's there's a lot more interesting ways you could take that from a technological standpoint. And there's a lot more interesting ways you could take that from a human standpoint. Um, and I feel like the Echo Wife did both. So I, I was wondering if that like happened to be a response to that story at all or not. So I guess not. <laughs> I haven't read it before, but I am going to check it out, especially because I, I, the more that I talk to people about the Echo Wife, the more that I realize I need to swim around a little bit more in the world of clone fiction. It's not, I keep on getting such great recommendations from people. And I, I do feel like there is something horrifying about realizing that something has humanity to it that you haven't realized, right? The kind of classic Reddit horror concept of what if your dog all of a sudden gained the power of speech and could tell everyone everything they've seen. I I think it's, (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty scary stuff. So I guess I am curious because you have said that, you know, you always focus on the relationships first and the human element is the core of your stories. So I guess maybe specifically for this one, but in general as well, since you are largely a speculative fiction writer, uh, why tell these stories through the lens of science fiction? Oh, I just, I mean, there, there's a couple of answers to that. One of them is a little bit more honest than the other. <laughs> so like my, my kind of, um, put this one in the newspaper to make me sound smart answer is that I think science fiction and fantasy offer such better opportunities for exploration of emotion and experience. And also human beings are really adept at imagination, right? It's one of the things that we're best at is imagining stuff. Some of us more than others, if we have real bad anxiety and we're really good at imagining things that are far from our own experience Sometimes we struggle to imagine things that are close to our own experience, but different. I think this is part of part of conflicts that we have within families, right? It's like, we live so much the same life. How can your understanding of this be different from mine? And if you introduce a fantastical element or a science fictional element, you can give people an opportunity to understand those close differences by viewing them through a far lens. So it's like, hey, this conflict that you have with your spouse that you're just really struggling with might be easier for you to comprehend and untangle if you, instead of imagining it's between you and your spouse, imagine that it's between like a spaceship AI and the captain of the ship. I think that it just, it just makes it easier to explore things that people might flinch away from otherwise. That's like my smart person answer. And then my kind of, <laughs> my kind of like two drinks answer is I'm, I'm just I just like it better. I just have more fun. I find it more interesting and compelling. I just recently wrote uh, a manuscript that is the first manuscript I've ever written that doesn't have a single speculative element. And it was so weird the whole time. I kept on peppering in these little things that would take it farther away from the lived experience of my readers so that I could be like, and now we put more emotion in here. It's like wrapping a pill in peanut butter for a dog. Yeah, I I like both of those answers. And I know, so like, yeah, my more highbrow answer as well would be like, you know, you've got, there's a lot of people, you have this like obstruction in your way from like being able to see a certain truth in the world or part of yourself. And then like the speculative element lets you just take a step to the side and now you can see past that. And like, you wouldn't have realized that unless you'd stepped sideways. Exactly. Um, and then also it's, it's just fun. I mean, it's a limitless genre, um, but I also like kind of, on the converse, I don't really find myself like I'm not the kind of person who will ever read a book of lore and like go into like all of the nitty gritty world building details or something or all the description because one, I can't really visualize things that well. And two, like I'm way more interested in the human element. Right. And that is not always there with something like that. Hard same. I also I mean, I, I think it would be remiss not to say that I think that the distinction between literary fiction and science fiction and fantasy is really arbitrary. I mean, in many ways, every book is in some way a fantasy or a science fiction book. Um, and there's someone much smarter than me whose name is escaping me right now once told me that every science fiction book is kind of a fantasy book because it's the fantasy that we would have the functioning technology that we would need. 
in order for the science fiction world to happen. But also, I mean, every literary book I've ever read is a fantasy in some way. It's a fantasy of a family where people actually communicate or a fantasy of a world where racism isn't relevant to the narrative or the fantasy of a world where, you know, a a guy can have an affair and not get caught and it changes his life and enriches his marriage in some way. I think that it would benefit us in some ways to acknowledge how much literary fiction is fantasy and how much fantasy and science fiction has literary merit that certain people would rather not acknowledge. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of it too, is just anytime you focus a story on like a certain part of the world and focus on a few like key characters, like all the experience outside of them is not going to apply compared to them. So like for some people that could be radically different for some people that could be like their exact lived experience, but it could be as far away as like, you know, chucking a ring into a volcano or something for some people. Exactly. Well, so, uh, what key takeaways do you hope that readers take away from reading The Echo Wife about themselves or the world that they inhabit? I mean, the first the, the first thing that I want is for readers to take away, like, damn, that was a good book. I want to go and <laughs> read all of their other books. <laughs> but I mean, I, I really want people who read this to come away more with questions than answers. I want people to come away from this book thinking about what's made them into the person that they are, because that's so much what this book is about. It's about our origins and where we come from and who shapes us and what we tell ourselves about self-definition. You know, Evelyn Caldwell, the main character who is not a clone spends so much of this book thinking that she's decided who she is. And uh, part of the book is told in flashbacks to her childhood, which call a lot of that into question. And that's true for so many of us. This is part of, you know, the big work of understanding the self, right. Is saying, where does this piece of me come from? And, At the same time, this book is very much about Martine, the clone, who's been shaped very deliberately to be everything that Evelyn is not in ways that she's chosen not to be, right? Or chosen as much as she thinks she can. Um, It's very much about Martine being an answer to Evelyn and Evelyn having to examine herself and say, are these shortcomings or are these strengths? Do I hate her because she's everything I'm not? Or do I wish that I was more like her because she has a life that I don't? And I want readers to come away from this thinking a little bit differently about people who oppose them, people who are different from them in very fundamental ways, and what made those people the way they are. And I want the reader to be thinking about why they respond to people the way that they do. And also, I want them to be like, this book kicks ass, and I want to read everything else Sarah Gailey wrote. <laughs> yes, absolutely, right? I mean, that that's very understandable and probably like the number one takeaway that all writers want people to take from their books, right, before <laughs> anything else. Because um, how else can you tell your other stories and give readers those other messages you'd like them to take away from your work, right? There you go. Well, uh, you, I think you mentioned it briefly, but are, is there anything you're working on currently that you can tell us about? I don't think I'm allowed to go into too much detail about it yet, but I am okay. currently editing my third novel for adults, um, which will hopefully be coming out from Tor, uh, Tor books next year, provided that I don't turn in this edited manuscript to my editor and get back a note saying, what is this garbage? (laughs) Um, it's, I think I'm allowed to say this. It is a romantic horror book. Okay. Uh, and this isn't the actual tagline, but since I already said it, the tagline of my heart is under the bed is the scariest place in the house. I love that. And I love uh, how that story idea was spawned from Steve talking as well. <laughs> and I think I think this is also the story that you've said uh, before. I want to say it was a tweet where you were like giving scented candles to your different works. And so this one was like basement under the bed and fear sweat scented. Yep. Yeah. And the uh, in this edit pass that I'm doing should add just a little bit of uh, Dracar Noir cologne. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Very intriguing. Well, so I've been really enjoying your Substack newsletter lately. I think we've talked about that some throughout this, Uh, but can you talk a little bit about that and why our audience might like to subscribe? Yeah, um, I would love your audience to subscribe. So my Substack is, uh, for people who aren't familiar, Substack is like a combination newsletter blog platform. So you get uh, newsletters via email, but you can also read the full archive in a blog. It really started out as a way for me to offload story ideas and article ideas that 
I just had too many of it at a time. And it's evolved so much in the past year. Um, it's very much oriented toward community and caring. Uh, it's, it's a lot about self-care. The free tier in the year to come is going to have guest posts from authors with uh, books that are about to come out about their work and their, their kind of journey through authorship. It's also going to feature, as always, um, little interval intervals of checking in with yourself and making sure that you're taking care of yourself as the world continues to be a very frightening and difficult place to navigate. Um, this year I'm going to be, since 2021, it is a banger year for 20th anniversaries of movies. So I'm going to be resurrecting an old feature called It's Not That Deep that I did at Tor.com doing needlessly in-depth analyses of films that don't necessarily merit analysis. Um, and I'll be doing uh, one movie a month. A couple of the titles that I'm going to be doing include uh, Spy Kids, Legally Blonde, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, and Wet Hot American Summer. Uh, some movies to revisit this year and talk about literary themes and uh, you know big sweeping metaphors, like, for instance, how the twisters in Twister are actually a representation of a queer desire to destroy the nuclear family model. <laughs> I love that. I love that movie so much. Um, I'm also going to be doing a series of world building conversations, uh, just helping my readers find their way to creativity and world building through relatively absurd conversations with writers and non-writers about things like if you went into a fantastical forest and met a creature called the embezzler, what would it look like? <laughs> <laughs> That's all the free tier. You can also pay $5 a month, which helps to pay for my health care to get access to the feature called what we share, which is a monthly feature, uh, three different emails a month with experiences that you can share with people around the world. Um, we do, a book and a beverage. We do a playlist and a recipe and we do a comfort and a challenge every month and share those experiences together to connect with each other. Um, even though we can't see each other, be near each other. It's so amazing. The community that's formed in the paying subscribers is supportive and caring and kind. We also do a Friday open thread every week where people just come in and chat about what's going on in their lives. And it has become a total refuge and sanctuary from the world. <laughs> which is, I can't, I can't stress this enough, a terrible and frightening place. <laughs> it so, really uh, is. The Substack is at sarahgealy.substack.com. I really love it there. So do a lot of people. And I really hope that your listeners will join us. Yeah. And listeners, there's going to be a link to that in the show notes. So you can just click that and get access immediately if you so desire. So I do also like to ask everyone just uh, kind of, you know, your standard question. Uh, what are some books that you've enjoyed lately and you'd recommend? Oh my gosh. I have been getting to read so many great books recently. Um, I, I recently read Beach Read by Emily Henry, which is a romance novel about a, a like literary fiction guy and a romance novel author who find themselves in adjacent beach houses and challenge each other to switch genres for the summer. And I, I hadn't picked it up for a little while because I was like, oh, this sounds a little lightweight for what I'm looking for right now. And then a friend of mine was like, you need to read this book. And it turns out to be a bomb romance novel. So good. I love romance novels and romance authors are like some of the best of us. And also like an incredibly stunning meditation on grief and family dynamics. Did not see that part coming based on the cover copy, but I highly recommend it. It gave me a lot of emotions and it's really beautiful. And also, again, it's just a very satisfying, great romance novel. I already mentioned a Psalm for the wild adult by Becky chambers, which was a total banger. Um, it's about a world in which robots all gain sentience at the same time on earth and say, Hey, we kind of don't want to serve the needs of men anymore. And humanity says, yeah, okay, we get it. We shouldn't enslave you. And the robots decide that they want to go and live in the wilderness so that they can be among things that weren't uh, manufactured by human hands. And they go off into the wilderness. And this book takes place a few generations after that happens. Um, and is like a really beautiful allegory about, what it means to exist and what purpose, what purpose means and what the world exists for. It's like totally gorgeous. I would also really strongly recommend, uh, victories greater than death, which is Charlie Jane Anders upcoming YA novel. It has everything you want from Charlie Jane Anders, very saturated, very fast paced, very, I always just think of it as like prose with all the colors turned up to maximum. 
And it's also very emotional and has all of these disparate threads that come together into a beautiful thing at the end. And it's just, I mean, it's just lovely. I'm, I can't say enough good things about Charlie Jane's work ever, but this is peak form Charlie Jane. Yeah. All of those sound fascinating. Uh, and part of, I guess, it's not really a downside. It's like a blessing and a curse is I always add so many books to my to be read list when I do these interviews. So <laughs> thank you for that. I'm happy to stuck you up. Yeah. And then uh, finally, I always like to close out with what's just one thing you're excited about right now? Oh, gosh. What is one thing I'm excited about? I don't know. Christmas and, and New Year just happened. So like, I was excited about those for so long. Now I'm like, oh, what's coming up? I think the thing I'm most excited about is um, the Echo Wife coming out. I mean, I feel like this is yeah. such a cop out, but this is the, a, a book I'm really proud of and excited to share with the world. And it's been building up to release for so long and in just a little bit over a month now, it's going to be on shelves. Like I'm over the moon excited to share it with the world. Yeah. I'm excited to be able to finally talk about it with people too. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to that. Well, this has been so wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast and yeah, best of luck with the Echo Wife coming out. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute pleasure. It was a really great way to start my day. You can find Sarah Gailey on Twitter and on Instagram as Gailey Frey or at their website, saragailey.com. The Echo Wife is a kick-ass story about trauma, origin, and identity. It has the three elements I look for in every domestic thriller. Plot twists, murder, and clones. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider nominating us for the Hugo Award for Best Fan Cast, along with any other podcasts or booktube channels you enjoy. Nominations are open from now through March 19th. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. And now, stay tuned for a clip of The Signal. Do not become attached to The Signal, for The Signal belongs to no one. Three days from now, you will have an important revelation. Knowing this, there is something I need you to do for me.